0: This month is all Edgar Allan Poe on Blacklock Audio Tales. Up first, Edgar Allan Poe. Death of Edgar Allan Poe. The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hand's Flaul, The Gold Bug. Four Beasts in One. The Homo Camel Leopard. Murders in the Rue Morgue. The Mystery of Mary Roget. The Balloon Hoax. Miss Found in a Bottle. The Oval Portrait. Blacklock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. It's still cold outside in a lot of places. Why don't you get some of those Dino Sound Slippers? Walk around, make Dino Sounds. It's super fun. Be a clown. Get some of those cool t-shirts that they have all around at founditemclothing.com. look like your favorite cool guy from your favorite 80s movie. Or maybe a bad guy from an 80s movie if that's your thing too. Or just, do you like t-shirts that celebrate cult films from the 80s and 90s? founditemclothing.com you should go with them and while we're talking about people a quick shout out to monster kid radio monster kid radio google it search for it online uh zach ferguson look for the show notes for articulate warbling a podcast i produce let's see what else um search for twisted pulp radio i think it is what it's called And Twisted Pulp Radio, Twisted Pulp Show, anyway, it's a pulp radio show produced out of some radio station in California, and I lend some voice talents to that occasionally. Okay, what else do we have in the show notes? Dave's Corner of the Universe. Check out Dave's Corner of the Universe by just simply searching for Dave's Corner of the Universe. There's no other Dave's Corners of the Universe out there. And also listen for Dave's little specials here and there on Black Clock Audio Tales. And also Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, which just had a Christmas special drop. And hopefully we'll have its episode one happen within the month of January. So we'll see when all that happens. It's going to be super cool and also don't forget to follow black clock audio tales on social media just look for pgttcm that's the website pgttcm.com for people's guide to the cthulhu mythos R monthly cthulhu mythos show that oh unfortunately we just had a reading last month but hey this month we're gonna go back to having an episode and also let's not forget that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at pgttcm or look for black clock audio tales if that doesn't work. And let's not forget you are wonderful and I think you're great. Okay.
1: Black clock
0: audio tales
1: The works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven edition, volume one. Manuscript found in a bottle. Qui n'a plus qu'un moment à vivre, non plus rien à dissimuler. Qui Of my country and of my family I have little to say. Your usage and length of years have driven me from the one and estranged me from the other. Hereditary wealth afforded me an education of no common order and a contemplative turn of mind enabled me to methodize the stores which early study very diligently garnered up. Beyond all things the study of the German moralists gave me great delight not from any ill-advised admiration of their eloquent madness but from the ease with which my habits of rigid thought enabled me to detect their falsities. I have often been reproached with the aridity of my genius. A deficiency of imagination has been imputed to me as a crime, and the Pyrrhanism of my opinions has at all times rendered me notorious. Indeed, a strong relish for physical philosophy has, I fear, tinctured my mind with a very common error of this age. I mean the habit of referring occurrences even the least susceptible of such reference to the principles of that science. Upon the whole, no person could be less liable than myself to be led away from the severe pre of truth by the ignais fatui of superstition. I have thought proper to premise thus much, lest the incredible tale I have to tell should be considered rather the raving of a crude imagination than the positive experience of a mind to which the reveries of fantasy have been a dead letter and a nullity. After many years spent in foreign travel, I sailed in the year 18 from the port of Batavia in the rich and populous island of Java on a voyage to the archipelago of the Sunda Islands. I went as passenger, having no other inducement than a kind of nervous restlessness, which haunted me as a fiend. Our vessel was a beautiful ship of about 400 tons, copper fastened, and built at Bombay of Malabar Teak. She was freighted with cotton wool and oil from the Lacadave Islands. We had also on board coir, jaggery, ghee, cocoa nuts, and a few cases of opium. The stowage was clumsily done, and the vessel consequently crank. We got under way with a mere breath of wind, and for many days stood along the eastern coast of Java without any other incident to beguile the monotony of our course than the occasional meeting with some of the small grabs of the archipelago to which we were bound. One evening, leaning over the taffrail, I observed a very singular, isolated cloud to the northwest. It was remarkable, as well for its colour, as from its being the first we had seen since our departure from Batavia. I watched it attentively until sunset, when it spread all at once to the eastward and westward girting in the horizon with a narrow strip of vapour and looking like a long line of low beach. My notice was soon afterwards attracted by the dusky red appearance of the moon and the peculiar character of the sea. The latter was undergoing a rapid change and the water seemed more than usually transparent. Although I could distinctly see the bottom yet, heaving the lead, I found the ship in fifteen fathoms. The air now became intolerably hot and was loaded with spiral exhalations, similar to those arising from heat iron. As night came on, every breath of wind died away, and more entire calm it is impossible to conceive. The flame of a candle burnt upon the poop, without the least perceptible motion. And a long hair, held between the finger and thumb, hung without the possibility of detecting a vibration. However, as the captain said he could perceive no indication of danger, and as we were drifting in bodily to shore, he ordered the sails to be filled and the anchor let go. No watch was set, and the crew, consisting principally of Malays, stretched themselves deliberately upon the deck. I went below, not without a full presentiment of evil. Indeed, every appearance warranted me in apprehending a Simoom. I told the captain my fears, but he paid no attention to what I said. It left me without deigning to give a reply. My uneasiness, however, prevented me from sleeping, and about midnight I went upon deck. As I placed my foot upon the upper step of the companion ladder, I was startled by a loud humming noise, like that occasioned by the rapid revolution of a mill wheel, and before I could ascertain its meaning, I found the ship quivering to its centre. In the next instant, a wilderness of foam hurled us upon our beam ends, and rushing over us, fore and aft, swept the entire deck from stem to stern. The extreme fury of the blast proved, in a great measure, the salvation of the ship. Although completely waterlogged, yet, as her masts had gone by the board, She rose after a minute heavily from the sea and, staggering a while beneath the immense pressure of the tempest, finally righted. By what miracle I escaped destruction, it is impossible to say. Stunned by the shock of the water, I found myself, upon recovery, jammed in between the stern post and the rudder. With great difficulty I gained my feet and looking dizzily round was at first struck with the idea of our being among breakers. So terrific beyond the wildest imagination was the whirlpool of mountainous and foaming ocean within which we were engulfed. After a while I heard the voice of an old Swede who had shipped with us at the moment of our leaving port. I hallowed to him with all my strength and presently he came reeling aft. We soon discovered that we were the sole survivors of the accident. All on deck, with the exception of ourselves, had been swept overboard. The captain and mates must have perished as they slept, for the cabins were deluged with water. Without assistance, we could expect to do little for the security of the ship, and our exertions were at first paralyzed by the momentary expectation of going down. Our cable had, of course, parted like pack thread at the first breath of the hurricane. Or we should have been instantaneously overwhelmed. We scudded with frightful velocity before the sea and the water made clear breaches over us. The framework of our stern was shattered excessively and in almost every respect we had received considerable injury. But to our extreme joy we found the pumps unchoked and that We had made no great shifting of the ballast. The main fury of the blast had already blown over and we apprehended little danger from the violence of the wind. But we looked forward to its total cessation with dismay, well believing that, in our shattered condition, we should inevitably perish in the tremendous swell which would ensue. But this very just apprehension seemed by no means likely to be soon verified. For five entire days and nights during which our subsistence was a small quantity of jaggery procured with great difficulty from the foxhole. The hulk flew at a rate defying computation before rapidly succeeding flaws of wind which without equaling the first violence of the Simoom were still more terrific than any tempest I had ever encountered. Our course for the first four days was, with trifling variations, southeast and by south, and we must have run down the coast of New Holland. On the fifth day, the cold became extreme, although the wind had hauled round a point more to the northward. The sun arose with a sickly yellow luster and clambered a few degrees above the horizon, emitting no decisive light. There were no clouds apparent, yet the wind was upon the increase and blew with a fitful and unsteady fury. About noon, as nearly as we could guess, Our attention was again arrested by the appearance of the sun. It gave out no light, properly so-called, but a dull and sullen glow without reflection, as if all its rays were polarised. Just before sinking within the turgid sea, its central fires suddenly went out, as if hurriedly extinguished by some unaccountable power. It was a dim sliver-like rim, alone as it rushed down the unfathomable ocean. We waited in vain for the arrival of the sixth day. That day to me has not arrived, to the Swede never did arrive. Thenceforward, we were enshrouded in patchy darkness so that we could not have seen an object at 20 paces from the ship. Eternal night continued to envelop us, all unrelieved by the phosphoric sea brilliancy to which we had been accustomed in the tropics. We observed, too, that although the tempest continued to rage with unabated violence, there was no longer to be discovered the usual appearance of surf or foam which had hitherto attended us. All around were horror and thick gloom and a black sweltering desert of ebony. Superstitious terror crept by degrees into the spirit of the old Swede and my own soul was wrapped up in silent wonder. We neglected all care of the ship as worse than useless and securing ourselves as well as possible to the stump of the mizzenmast, looked out bitterly into the world of ocean. We had no means of calculating time, nor could we form any guess of our situation. We were, however, well aware of having made farther to the southward than any previous navigators, and felt great amazement at not meeting with the usual impediments of ice. In the meantime, every moment threatened to be our last. Every mountainous billow hurried to overwhelm us. The swell surpassed anything I had imagined possible. And that we were not instantly buried is a miracle. My companion spoke of the lightness of our cargo and reminded me of the excellent qualities of our ship. But I could not help feeling the utter hopelessness of hope itself and prepared myself gloomily for that death which I thought nothing could defer beyond an hour as with every knot of way the ship made the swelling of the black stupendous seas became dismally appalling. At times we gasped for breath at an elevation of beyond the albatross at times became dizzy with the velocity of our descent into some watery hill where the air grew stagnant and no sound disturbed the slumbers of the kraken. We were at the bottom of one of these abysses when a quick scream from our companion broke fearfully upon the night. See! See, cried he, shrieking in my ears, Almighty God, see, see. As he spoke, I became aware of a dull, sullen glare of red light which streamed down the sides of the vast chasm where we lay and threw a fitful brilliancy upon our deck. Casting my eyes upward, I beheld a spectacle which froze the current of my blood. At a terrific height, directly above us, and upon the very verge of the precipitous descent, hovered a gigantic ship of perhaps 4,000 tons. Although upreared upon the summit of a wave more than a hundred times her own altitude, her apparent size exceeded that of any ship of the line or East India man in existence, her huge hull was a deep, dingy black, unrelieved by any of the customary carvings of a ship. A single row of brass cannon protruded from her open ports, and dashed from their polished surfaces the fires of innumerable battle lanterns, which swung to and fro about her rigging. But what mainly inspired us with horror and astonishment was that she bore up under a press of sail in the very teeth of that supernatural sea and of that ungovernable hurricane. When we first discovered her, her bows were alone to be seen as she rose slowly from the dim and horrible gulf beyond her. For a moment of intense terror she paused upon the giddy pinnacle, as if in contemplation of her own sublimity, then trembled and tottered and came down. At this instant I know not what sudden self-possession came over my spirit. Staggering as far aft as I could I awaited fearlessly the ruin that was to overwhelm. Our own vessel was at length ceasing from her struggles and sinking with her head to the sea. The shock of the descending mass struck her consequently in that portion of her frame which was already under water and the inevitable result was to hurl me with irresistible violence upon the rigging of the stranger. As I fell, the ship hove in stays and went about, and to the confusion ensuing I attributed my escape from the notice of the crew. With little difficulty I made my way unperceived to the main hatchway, which was partially open and soon found an opportunity of secreting myself in the hold. Why I did so I can hardly tell. An indefinite sense of awe, which at first sight of the navigators of the ship had taken hold of my mind, was perhaps the principle of my concealment. I was unwilling to trust myself to a race of people who had offered to the cursory glance I had taken So many points of vague novelty, doubt, and apprehension. I therefore thought proper to contrive a hiding place in the hold. This I did by removing a small portion of the shifting boards in such a manner as to afford me a convenient retreat between the huge timbers of the ship. I had scarcely completed my work when a footstep in the hold forced me to make use of it. A man passed by my place of concealment with a feeble and unsteady gait. I could not see his face, but had an opportunity of observing his general appearance. There was about it an evidence of great age and infirmity. His knees tottered beneath the load of ears, and his entire frame quivered under the burthen. He muttered to himself in a low, broken tone some words of a language which I could not understand and groped in a corner among a pile of singular-looking instruments and decayed charts of navigation. His manner was a wild mixture of peevishness of second childhood and the solemn dignity of a god. He at length went on deck, and I saw him no more. A feeling for which I have no name has taken possession of my soul. A sensation which will admit of no analysis, to which the lessons of bygone times are inadequate, and for which I fear futurity itself will offer me no key. To a mind constituted like my own, the latter consideration is an evil. I shall never, I know that I shall never, be satisfied with regard to the nature of my conceptions. Yet it is not wonderful that these conceptions are indefinite, since they have their origin in sources so utterly novel, a new sense, a new entity, Is added to my soul. It is long since I first trod the deck of this terrible ship and the rays of my destiny are, I think, gathering to a focus. Incomprehensible men, wrapped up in meditations of a kind which I cannot divine, they pass me by unnoticed. Concealment is utter folly on my part, for the people will not see. It was but just now that I passed directly before the eyes of the mate. It was no long while ago that I ventured into the captain's own private cabin and took thence the materials with which I write and have written. I shall from time to time continue this journal. It is true that I may not find an opportunity of transmitting it to the world, but I will not fall to make the endeavor. At the last moment I will enclose the manuscript in a bottle and cast it within the sea. An incident has occurred which has given me new room for meditation. Are such things the operation of ungoverned chance? I had ventured upon deck and thrown myself down without attracting any notice among a pile of rattling stuff and old sails in the bottom of the yawl. While musing upon the singularity of my fate I unwittingly daubed with a tar brush The edges of a neatly folded stencil which lay near me on a barrel. The stencil is now bent upon the ship and the thoughtless touches of the brush are spread out into the word discovery. I have made many observations lately upon the structure of the vessel. Although well armed, she is not, I think, a ship of war. Her rigging build, and general equipment, all negative, a supposition of this kind. What she is not, I can easily perceive. What she is, I fear it is impossible to say. I know not how it is, but in scrutinizing her strange model and singular cast of spars. Her huge size and overgrown suits of canvas, her severely simple bow and antiquated stern, they will occasionally flash across my mind a sensation of familiar things and there is always, mixed up with such indistinct shadows of recollection, an unaccountable memory of old foreign chronicles and ages long ago. I have been looking at the timbers of the ship. She is built of a material to which I am a stranger. There is a peculiar character about the wood which strikes me as rendering it unfit for the purpose to which it has been applied. I mean its extreme porousness considered independently by the worm-eaten condition, which is a consequence of navigation in these seas, and apart from the rottenness attendant upon age. It will appear perhaps an observation somewhat over-curious, but this wood would have every characteristic of Spanish oak. If Spanish oak were distended by any unnatural means. In reading the above sentence, a curious apothegm of an old weather-beaten Dutch navigator comes full upon my recollection. It is as sure, he was wont to say, when any doubt was entertained of his veracity, as sure as there is a sea where the ship itself will grow in bulk, like the living body of the seamen. About an hour ago, I made bold to thrust myself among a group of the crew. They paid me no manner of attention, and, although I stood in the very midst of them all, seemed utterly unconscious of my presence. Like the one I had at first seen in the hold, they all bore about them the marks of a hoary old age. Their knees trembled with infirmity. Their shoulders were bent double with decrepitude. Their shrivelled skins rattled in the wind. Their voices were low, tremulous and broken. Their eyes glistened with the room of years and their grey hairs streamed terribly in the tempest. Around them, on every part of the deck, lay scattered mathematical instruments of the most quaint and obsolete construction. I mentioned some time ago the bending of a stencil. From that period, the ship, being thrown dead off the wind, has continued her terrific course due south with every rag of canvas packed upon her, from her trucks to her lower stencil booms, and rolling every moment her two-gallant yard arms into the most appalling hell of water which it can enter into the mind of man to imagine. I have just left the deck, where I found it impossible to maintain a footing, although the crew seem to experience little inconvenience. It appears to me a miracle of miracles that our enormous bulk is not swallowed up at once and forever. We are surely doomed to hover continually upon the brink of eternity without taking a final plunge into the abyss. From billows a thousand times more stupendous than any I have ever seen, we glide away with the facility of the arrowy seagull, and the colossal waters rear their heads above us like demons of the deep, but like demons confined to simple threats and forbidden to destroy. I am led to attribute these frequent escapes to the only natural cause which can account for such effect I must suppose the ship to be within the influence of some strong current or impetuous undertow. I have seen the captain face to face and in his own cabin but as I expected he paid me no attention. Although in his appearance there is to a casual observer, nothing which might bespeak him more or less than man, still a feeling of irrepressible reverence and awe mingled with the sensation of wonder with which I regarded him. In stature he is nearly my own height, that is about 5 feet 8 inches. He is of a well-knit and compact frame of body neither robust nor remarkably otherwise, but it is the singularity of the expression which reigns upon the face. It is the intense, the wonderful, the thrilling evidence of old age so utter, so extreme, which excites within my spirit a sense, a sentiment ineffable. His forehead, although little wrinkled, seems to bear upon it the stamp of a myriad of years. His grey hairs are records of the past and his greyer eyes are sibyls of the future. The cabin floor was thickly strewn with strange iron-clasped folios and mouldering instruments of science and obsolete long forgotten charts his head was bowed down upon his hands and he pored, with a fiery unquiet eye over a paper which i took to be a commission and which at all events bore the signature of a monarch he muttered to himself as did the first seamen whom i saw in the hold some low, peevish syllables of a foreign tongue. And although the speaker was close at my elbow, his voice seemed to reach my ears from the distance of a mile. The ship and all in it are imbued with the spirit of Eld. The crew glide to and fro like the ghosts of buried centuries their eyes have an eager and uneasy meaning and when their fingers fall athwart my path in the wild glare of the battle lanterns I feel as I have never felt before although I have been all my life a dealer in antiquities and have imbibed the shadows of fallen columns of Baalbek and Tadmor and Persepolis, until my very soul has become a ruin. When I look around me, I feel ashamed of my former apprehensions. If I trembled at the blast which has hitherto attended us, shall I not stand aghast at a warring of wind and ocean to convey any idea of which the words Tornado and Simoom Are trivial and ineffective. All in the immediate vicinity of the ship is the blackness of eternal night and a chaos of foamless water, but about a league on either side of us may be seen indistinctly and at intervals stupendous ramparts of ice towering away into the desolate sky, and looking like the walls of the universe. As I imagined, the ship proves to be in a current. If that appellation can properly be given to a tired which, howling and shrieking by the white ice, thunders on to the southward with a velocity like the headlong dashing of a cataract. To conceive the horror of my sensations is, I presume, utterly impossible. Yet a curiosity to penetrate the mysteries of these awful regions predominates even over my despair and will reconcile me to the most hideous aspect of death. It is evident that we are hurrying onward to some exciting knowledge some never-to-be-imparted secret whose attainment is destruction. Perhaps the current leads us to the southern pole itself. It must be confessed that a supposition apparently so wild has every probability in its favor. The crew paced the deck with unquiet and tremulous steps but there is upon their countenances an expression more of the eagerness of hope than of the apathy of despair. In the meantime, the wind is still in our poop, and as we carry a crowd of canvas, the ship is at times lifted bodily from out the sea. Oh, horror upon horror... The ice opens suddenly to the right and to the left and we are whirling dizzily in immense concentric circles round and round the borders of a gigantic amphitheatre, the summit of whose walls is lost in the darkness and the distance. But little time will be left me to ponder upon my destiny. The circles rapidly grow small. We are plunging madly within the grasp of the whirlpool. And amid a roaring and bellowing and thundering of ocean and of tempest, the ship is quivering, O God, and going down. Note, the manuscript found in a bottle was originally published in 1831, and it was not until many years afterwards that I became acquainted with the maps of Mercator, in which the ocean is represented as rushing by four mouths into the northern polar gulf to be absorbed into the bowels of the earth, the pole itself being represented by a black rock towering to a prodigious height. End of manuscript found in a bottle.
2: Recording by C.L.W. Rollins. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1, The Oval Portrait. The chateau into which my valet had ventured to make forcible entrance, rather than permit me, in my desperately wounded condition, to pass a night in the open air, was one of those piles of commingled gloom and grandeur which have so long frowned among the Apennines, not less in fact than in the fancy of Mrs. Radcliffe. To all appearance it had been temporarily and very lately abandoned. We established ourselves in one of the smallest and least sumptuously furnished apartments. It lay in a remote turret of the building. Its decorations were rich, yet tattered and antique. Its walls were hung with tapestry and bedecked with manifold and multiform armorial trophies, together with an unusually great number of very spirited modern paintings in frames of rich golden arabesque in these paintings which depended from the walls not only in their main surfaces but in very many nooks which the bizarre architecture of the chateau rendered necessary in these paintings my incipient delirium perhaps had caused me to take deep interest so that i bade pedro to close the heavy shutters of the room since it was already night to light the tongues of a tall candelabrum which stood by the head of my bed and to throw open far and wide the fringed curtains of black velvet which enveloped the bed itself i wished all this done that i might resign myself if not to sleep at least alternately to the contemplation of these pictures and the perusal of a small volume which had been found upon the pillow and which purported to criticize and describe them long long i read and devoutly devotedly i gazed Rapidly and gloriously the hours flew by, and the deep midnight came. The position of the candelabrum displeased me, and outreaching my hand with difficulty, rather than disturb my slumbering valet, I placed it so as to throw its rays more fully upon the book. But the action produced an effect altogether unanticipated. The rays of the numerous candles, for there were many, now fell within a niche of the room which had hitherto been thrown into deep shade by one of the bedposts. I thus saw, in vivid light, a picture all unnoticed before. It was the portrait of a young girl, just ripening into womanhood. I glanced at the painting hurriedly, and then closed my eyes. Why I did this was not at first apparent even to my own perception, but while my lids remained thus shut, I ran over in my mind my reason for so shutting them. It was an impulsive movement to gain time for thought, to make sure that my vision had not deceived me, to calm and subdue my fancy for a more sober and more certain gaze. In a very few moments I again looked fixedly at the painting. That I now saw aright I could not and would not doubt for the first flashing of the candles upon that canvas had seemed to dissipate the dreamy stupor which was stealing over my senses, and to startle me at once into waking life. The portrait, I have already said, was that of a young girl. It was a mere head and shoulders, done in what is technically termed a vignette manner, much in the style of the favorite heads of Sully. The arms, the bosom, and even the ends of the radiant hair melted imperceptibly into the vague yet deep shadow which formed the background of the whole. The frame was oval, richly gilded, and filigreed and moresque. As a thing of art, nothing could be more admirable than the painting itself, but it could have been neither the execution of the work nor the immortal beauty of the countenance which had so suddenly and so vehemently moved me least of all could it have been that my fancy shaken from its half slumber had mistaken the head for that of a living person i saw at once that the peculiarities of the design of the vignetting and of the frame must have instantly dispelled such idea must have prevented even its momentary entertainment thinking earnestly upon these points i remained for an hour perhaps half sitting half reclining with my vision riveted upon the portrait at length satisfied with the true secret of its effect i fell back within the bed i had found the spell of the picture in an absolute life of expression which at first startling finally confounded subdued and appalled me with deep and reverent awe i replaced the candelabrum in its former position The cause of my deep agitation being thus shut from view, I sought eagerly the volume which discussed the paintings and their histories. Turning to the number which designated the oval portrait, I there read the vague and quaint words which follow. She was a maiden of rarest beauty, and not more lovely than full of glee, and evil was the hour when she saw and loved and wedded the painter he passionate studious austere and having already a bride in his art she a maiden of rarest beauty and not more lovely than full of glee all light and smiles and frolicsome as the young fawn loving and cherishing all things hating only the art which was her rival dreading only the palette and brushes and other untoward instruments which deprived her of the countenance of her lover It was thus a terrible thing for this lady to hear the painter speak of his desire to portray even his young bride. But she was humble and obedient, and sat meekly for many weeks in the dark high turret chamber, where the light dripped upon the pale canvas only from overhead. But he, the painter, took glory in his work, which went on from hour to hour and from day to day. And he was a passionate and wild and moody man who became lost in reveries so that he would not see that the light which fell so ghastly in that lone turret withered the health and the spirits of his bride who pined visibly to all but him. Yet she smiled on and still on uncomplainingly because she saw that the painter who had high renown took a fervid and burning pleasure in his task and wrought day and night to depict her who so loved him, yet who grew daily more dispirited and weak. And in sooth, some who beheld the portrait spoke of its resemblance in low words, as of a mighty marvel, and a proof not less of the power of the painter than of his deep love for her whom he depicted so surpassingly well. But at length, as the labor drew nearer to its conclusion, there admitted none into the turret, For the painter had grown wild with the ardor of his work, and turned his eyes from canvas merely even to regard the countenance of his wife. And he would not see that the tints which he spread upon the canvas were drawn from the cheeks of her who sat beside him. And when many weeks had passed, and but little remained to do, save one brush upon the mouth, and one tint upon the eye, the spirit of the lady again flickered up as the flame within the socket of the lamp. And then the brush was given, and then the tint was placed. And for one moment the painter stood entranced before the work which he had wrought. But in the next, while he yet gazed, he grew tremulous and very pallid and aghast, crying with a loud voice, This is indeed life itself, turned suddenly to regard his beloved. She was dead. End of the Oval Portrait Recording by C.L.W. Rollins, Longview, Texas. End of the Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1.